Oh God, we come to your word this morning with thankful hearts, thankful that we have it, it's been given to us, it's been preserved throughout history so that we have it here this morning read in a language that we can understand. And yeah, God, there are still many questions we have in our hearts and our minds. We need more than human understanding, we need spiritual understanding. So we cry out to you, O Spirit of God, that you would minister to our hearts this morning, that you would teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Make us more like Jesus. Give us understanding according to your word. Help us, O God. Father, I pray that you would help me, help me your servant, that you would protect me from error. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a common trope in the entertainment industry called just in time. Just in time. You can easily recognize it. I'll give you an example. The characters are in deep trouble. The enemy has them cornered. Their strength to resist is fading, and they are about to receive a striking blow that will no doubt leave them destroyed. Then suddenly, cue the hero, all calm and cool and collected, swooping in to save the day, perhaps even saying something like, oh, sorry, I'm late. He says that for dramatic effect. And then he deflects the striking blow and he saves everyone there from sure death. You see, the hero arrives just in time. That's why it's called just in time trope. He arrives. and All is well with the world. You know, the story of God's people through the ages, as it's recorded in Holy Scripture for us, shows that this is more than just a storytelling device. It's actual history. It's history. Through the epics of Exodus, judges, kings, and prophets, God's people often found themselves on the very brink of total destruction by their enemy, only to see their heavenly hero step in just in time to save them with a dramatic rescue by his own powerful hand. Whether it was in the time of Moses, the time of Barak and Deborah, perhaps the time of Gideon, David, Jehoshaphat, even Josiah, the people of God were not and are not strangers to God's timely deliverance. And though they often neglected and even altogether forgot about God's deliverance, his covenant faithfulness to them in this way, the good news was, and it actually still is and always will be, that God does not forget his promises to his people. God does not forget. God will always show up for his people just in time. Maybe it's not that. 
Maybe it's not just in time. Perhaps it's at just the right time. God shows up at just the right time. We find this truth once again in the passage before us. Revelation 16, 1 through 16. For even though, as we read over in Romans 1.18, Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. Although that be true, there remains the truth that God's people have been spared from his wrath. God's people have been spared and that there's coming a day when he will indeed rescue those who are suffering under earthly wrath, the wrath of those who are opposed to him and his ways. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news. It's good news certainly in John's day. It's good news in our day. It's news meant to strengthen the church the persecuted, suffering church as she stands for Christ and his kingdom and what the apostles called these last days. Last week, we spent a lot of time in verse 1. In fact, we spent the whole time in verse 1. And we considered together the nature and result of God's wrath in general. Now this week, we're going to dive deeper into chapter 16. And next week we'll actually overlap with some of the verses from this week. But what I want us to see is God's plan. God's plan for the outpouring of his wrath to exact judgment against his enemies and to rescue his people for himself. And to do this, we're going to study the passage under three headings. And if you're taking notes, these will make up our three points. I'll give them all to you up front. First of all, the revealing of wrath. The revealing of wrath. Second is the response to wrath. The response to wrath. And lastly, we'll look at the rescue from wrath. The rescue from wrath. Revealing, response, rescue. Let's start with the first R, the revealing of wrath. Now, as you heard this read, if the sequence of events that are revealed in the pouring out of the bowls of wrath seem familiar to you, that's good. It's understandable. It should be a little familiar to you, for there are both echoes of the plagues that afflicted Egypt and her pharaoh during the Exodus. Maybe you saw some of those correlations, but there's also clear parallels, in particular with the first four bowls with the seven seals and the seven trumpets that we encountered back in previous chapters. Again, showing that these are cycles of the same time in history shown over seven times in the book of Revelation. But just as the depiction of history does become more full and robust as we press on through those cycles as we're doing now, so does the revealing of God's wrath against his enemies. Remember the seven seals showed God's sovereignty in orchestrating the events and judgments of history. It showed him as the king of all history, king of the ages. And the seven trumpets, what did they do? They warned the people of the earth to repent in light of God's sure and coming judgments. 
And now the seven bowls of wrath. The seven bowls of wrath demonstrate God's full and ultimately final just retribution against sin and sinners. And as these bowls are poured out, look at verse 2. Notice who they are meant to afflict. The people who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. This underscores what we've already established. God's wrath is revealed against sin. It's revealed against ungodliness and against ungodly people. And though we as Christians might suffer, and we do suffer under various afflictions that resemble what we see here, though we might be affected by the consequences of sin, and though we might even be disciplined as a result of our own sin, listen, as Christians, we are not objects of God's wrath. Finally got my amen. We are not objects of God's wrath. Please don't forget that God's anger against our sin, if you're a believer in Jesus, God's anger against us for our sin was exhausted upon the cross of Calvary where Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for us. And we spent a lot of time on that last week, but we should be reminded of that each and every week. God's wrath against us as Christians, against our sin, was exhausted on the cross. But for those who are not in Christ, for those who are not in Christ, let's remember the words of that angel back in chapter 8. Woe, woe, woe. W-O-E. Woe. This woe is seen as God's wrath is revealed in these bowls that are poured out. With the first comes harmful and painful sores, disease, pestilence. With the second comes calamities upon the sea. With the third, calamities upon the rivers and lakes. And with the fourth, scorching heat. With the fifth, we see the overthrow, excuse me, of earthly kingdoms. And with the sixth, like the sixth trumpet and the sixth seal before, it's the end of days. It's right at the precipice of the final judgment. The day called, if you look in verse 14, the great day of God the Almighty. The great day of God the Almighty. Each and every one of these woes, these plagues, these bowls of wrath are unmistakably God's judgments. And while at times in history they will afflict the ungodly unto death, there are times there are times when they actually serve more as the trumpets that went before than they do wrath, the bowls of wrath, death. Think about this for a moment. Remember unbelieving Saul? Remember unbelieving Saul? What was he afflicted with as he met the Lord Jesus there on the road to Damascus? He was afflicted with a blindness He encountered the risen Christ, and he was afflicted with a blindness. But what was the purpose of that blindness? What was the purpose of that? It was used by God, right? So that when his eyes were truly open to see, he now had the eyes of faith, 
right? He had the eyes of faith, and he could now see the Lord Jesus in his glory. He could see that he himself now, as he put his faith in the risen Lord Jesus, he could see the mission to which he was called. It changed his life. It was a trumpet. It was judgment, but it was a trumpet, and it blared loudly, and his life was changed. What about Herod Agrippa? Do you remember Herod Agrippa? Acts chapter 12. What did he do? People were like, this is a God. He's great. And so he clothed himself in royal garb and he sat there. And God struck him dead. And he was eaten by worms. He was struck down in death in judgment. He refused to give glory to God, the text said. He refused to give glory to God and he was struck down in the sight of all. A judgment that led to death and to hell. Even so, you and I, we cannot know when it will be either, but we have to recognize that these things come as a result of God's judgment. And the point of the book of Revelation as it goes through these cycles of history is that these judgments will come with increasing frequency and increasing intensity right up until the very last day. And that brings us to our second heading this morning, response. What is the response to God's wrath? If you notice in chapter 16, there are two distinct responses to the outpouring of God's wrath. The first, we'll call it the heavenly response. Maybe we can call it the Christian response. You see it in verses five through seven. Look with me there. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The heavenly or Christian response is what I like to call appropriate appropriation. It's a mouthful, right? Appropriate appropriation. Why? Because the Christian response recognizes both the source and the purpose the source and the purpose of God's wrath, and therefore it responds accordingly. The text is clear. The source, of course, is God. It's from him. The source is God himself, the just and holy one, the Lord God Almighty. And the purpose is justice, true justice, to repay evil with the punishment of death, to exact retribution upon those who have sinned against God. I want you to notice that this response does not appear to just be some academic recitation of a truth, right? We do that sometimes, don't we? Someone asks us something like, well, we know this to be true, so let me just tell you what it means. That's not what I get out of this at all. This is a heartfelt cry. This is an effusive response. It's set apart even as poetry, as singing. It's, it's exuberance. It's worshiping God for who he is and what he does. 
Think about this. When God reveals himself as loving and as merciful, how do Christians respond? His steadfast love endures forever. Great is his faithfulness. When God reveals himself as a savior of his people, how do Christians respond? Hallelujah. What a savior. Grace. Grace that leads me home. We sing of it. When God reveals himself as the just and wrathful judge of sin and sinners, how do Christians respond? Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Amen, God. Yes, Lord, your judgments are true and just. That's the heart's cry of the Christian response. That is the heavenly response to God's wrath. And it's hard, but that's the response. We've seen it throughout the book. What's the other response? I'm going to call it the worldly response. Look at verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and they did not give him glory. Look again at verse 11. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So what's the world's response? They blaspheme God. They blaspheme God. Do you see that happening today? Nobody wants to shake their head, do they? Do you see that happening in the world around us today? I could have asked that question 1,500 years ago, 1,400 years ago, 30, and the answer should have been, yeah. I see that everywhere. Think about it for a minute. People savagely discarding their unwanted babies. People actively promoting and celebrating all forms of sexual immorality and deviancy. People waging ideological and even legislative wars against God's created design for mankind. And as they continue to do this, as the world continues to do this, why? They're doing it in direct opposition to and in direct contempt of God and his people. What he's revealed. Amazingly, the world, and it's done this for centuries, they look around and they they point to widespread poverty, ignorance, disease, lawlessness, brokenness everywhere, all of which in some form or another is rooted in the fall and in sin. They look at all that, they turn around, they say, this is God's fault. And our fault. It's the church's fault. It's amazing. Because in seeking to turn the tables the wrong direction, they end up failing to see that it's their own idolatry that has turned God's face away in anger. That they are truly reaping what they have sown. Rather than turning, this is God, rather than turning to them with his favor as he does his people, He lets his face shine upon us. He turns against them in his wrath. The sun scorches them, burns them up. 
And as he pours out his judgment upon those who oppose him, you think they would get it, right? They're finally going to get it, but they don't. They get angrier and angrier and angrier, and they do what wicked people have always done. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they oppose those who promote the truth. Even as their governments, history will teach you this, even as their governments, governments are toppled by God, even as earthly sources of security are ripped out from underneath the feet, ungodly people do not repent. They curse God. They die in their sin. If you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah, maybe you're familiar with this verse, two verses, Isaiah 57 20 and 21, after talking about peace for the covenant people, notice what it says. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked. There can be no peace for the wicked. It's a sobering truth, but it's a truth that plays out before our eyes every day unless we're closing our eyes to it. These are the two responses to God's wrath. The heavenly response and the worldly response, the Christian response and the unchristian response. I think it's important that I point out, as Christians, we should not be surprised when people who hate God act with hatred toward God. That shouldn't surprise you, but it should grieve you. It should grieve you. We should cry out to God and ask him to change their hearts. We should plead with him to change their hearts, to show mercy to them while there's still time. There's still time. And I think that by doing so, By actually taking time to pray, to pray that they would be changed and to work for change, rounds out the Christian response and makes it a truly biblical response. And yeah, there's times we're going to find ourselves, and maybe you've already been there, crying out for God to rain down fire and brimstone against his enemies. Anybody ever been there? At the same time, can't we also pray that God would save them, that God would change their hearts, that God would do what we cannot do? If that's not part of our Christian response, I'm convinced we're doing it wrong. We are doing it absolutely wrong. Because what we know, especially since we have the revelation here for us, because what we know is there's coming a day There's coming a day when his wrath will be fulfilled. There is coming a day where there won't be another day for a change. It's depicted for us in verses 12 through 16. It's called here Armageddon. How fitting on Mother's Day, I preached on the mark of the beast. (laughs) And on Father's Day, hrumph, men, we get Armageddon. This is where we're going to find our third and final heading this morning. 
on this day that we'll fully see the great and mighty rescue, rescue from wrath that God provides for his people. I'm going to say it again in a minute. I'm going to say it now. We're not going to get to everything in these few verses in our time left. We're going to overlap with this next week. You can still hit me with your questions. I love it when you do. But just know we're going to spend a little bit of extra time next week going back to this. One of the commentaries I used for the book of Revelation was written by William Hendrickson in 1940. He did some edits in the 50s. But he said, of late it has been raining sermons and lectures on Armageddon. That was 1940. Today, I think you'd call it a flood. I think you'd call it a flood. So much has been written in just the last 50 years that it's mind-blowing. And I'm sure much more is going to come. So this morning, just to help us make some sense of this, let me draw your attention to three things in relation to today's main focus for the sermon, His Mighty Rescue. First of all, I want you to know that Armageddon means something. It's, it's a Hebrew word, Harmageddon, right? Uh, Har is the Hebrew word for mount. And Megiddo is the other part of that. Megiddo is an actual place. It's a fortress city that overlooks the plain to the northwest of Jerusalem. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that this has been the host to great battles in antiquity. And in fact, even in the last few hundred years, it's been host to some battles as well. It's got people really excited. Overlooking this battlefield, if you think about the geography, and I had to have some help with this because I'm not really good at geography, but if you, you think about where it's at, on one side is Mount Tabor, which you may remember is from which Deborah and Barak launched their assault on the Canaanites. Across the valley is Mount Gilboa, where Saul was slain by the Philistines. Behind Megiddo is Mount Carmel, where Elijah conquered the false prophets of Baal who were in service to Jezebel. It was in the plain surrounding it that Gideon blew his trumpet and overthrew the Midianites. And it's actually the place where Israel's last godly king, Josiah, died in battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. With all that kind of history in mind, Derek Thomas notes this. He says, It is then altogether appropriate that Megiddo should symbolize the location of the battle of the Lord against the forces of darkness, and that the final cataclysmic battle should be pictured as taking place here. Notice the word picture. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. This is a picture. It's right that this place would be picked. And plus Armageddon sounds really cool. Second, I want you to know that this is not the only time that we have this picture. And unless we fall into the trap of thinking that there's a lot of battles, I mean, how many final battles can you really have, right? One final battle, and we get multiple pictures of this final battle throughout the book of Revelation. You saw it in chapter 11, and you're going to see it again in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. These pictures serve to show us a vital truth that there is indeed coming a day when the forces of the world will come together under the influence of Satan and his beast, that counterfeit false trinity, 
It's symbolized here. Look at verses 13 and 14. These unclean spirits who are like frogs, right? Frogs get a bad rap, right? Like frogs, they come upon and they deceive, right? Work wonders, these demons do. They gather together to rally together the kings of this world so that they can join together for what purpose? To wage war against God. To wage war against God and his people. Isn't that the last picture we had in the cycles of Revelation? The dragon and his beast pursuing the church to try to kill the church? That's what this battle is. Thinking about it from a historical perspective, we can think of it this way. The rulers of this world have been coming together for centuries. The world has constantly been marching against the church. And they are coming together more and more as we come to that last day. And they have one goal. Destroy the church. To slay God's people. And if they're able, to even slay God himself. That's what's being pictured here. And the last thing I want to draw your attention to this morning, and like I said, don't worry, we're going to go back to this particular passage, the sixth bowl next week and look at it. The last thing I want you to see is that no matter how bad things get, no matter how dire the situation may become, no matter how powerful and sinister the forces arrayed against God and his church may become, God will indeed rescue his people at just the right time. He's done it before. He will certainly do it again. I mean, verse 15 is just kind of awkwardly placed, isn't it? Verse 15 just kind of like Jesus interrupts. He interrupts. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to know. This is his voice breaking through. I mean, if you read this, in light of what we know to be true about the world, we're like, this is bad. All those forces of evil gathering against us. But Jesus breaks through. His voice is meant to ring louder than the rattling of sabers and the shouts of war. Jesus breaks through and says, behold, I am coming like a thief. That should sound familiar to us, right? That's how he talked about his own second coming. We come like a thief in the night. I'm coming like a thief, he says. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You see, Jesus wants his people to know that he's coming to rescue them from the wrath of the world at just the right time. Like a thief comes in the night, he's going to swoop down and rescue his people. Just as he had done time and time and time and time again in his people's history. I mean, make no mistake, there's going to be war. And if you're familiar with chapters 19 and 20, which we'll get to later this year, you know it's not pretty but you know the outcome. Somebody once asked me, can you summarize Revelation in two words? Yes. 
Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He is absolutely victorious. Jesus proves himself to be the hero we're waiting for. And he's surely the hero that unlike the heroes that we see in those popular entertainment tropes, he doesn't need to apologize for being late. He doesn't need to look all calm, cool, and collected, even though he might be under pressure. No, he's going to show up at just the right time, according to just the right plan, the way God has always intended it to be, and he's going to rescue his people, and he's going to deliver them. He wins. He wins. What are we to do? Well, we've seen calls to endurance and faithfulness. How about a call to wait? How about a call to wait? Isn't that what we are called to do? To wait with eager anticipation this great and awesome day? I mean, he tells us, stay awake. That worked well for the disciples, right? The night when he was betrayed. Stay awake. No, they couldn't. Calling us to us too. Stay awake. Notice also to stay clothed in his righteousness, to abide in him, right? To remain in his love, to keep our eyes fixed upon him and upon our heavenly calling in him, to fight the good fight of the faith, to run with endurance the race set before us, and all those passages that we just hold so dear. But can we be honest for a minute? It's hard. It's hard. It's wearying. I even say it's discouraging. It's discouraging. When you look around and you see the vast array of evil and ungodliness in the world, when you feel as though you're fighting a battle that cannot be won, when you think that at any moment the devil is going to strike a fatal blow that just brings you and maybe those you love to an end, it's hard to keep your head up. It's hard to fight. It's hard to keep looking for Jesus. Maybe that's why we so easily turn to other things. Maybe that's why the temptation to compromise is so great. Maybe that's why many of us have gotten really good at grumbling and complaining against providential circumstances that God brings into our lives. It's hard. Is it hard for you? Is it wearying? Is it discouraging? How about you? Is it hard? You know what? It's good to say yes. You're in good company. That's why God has called us together. That's why God has called us together. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus your only hope? I'll ask again. Is Jesus absolutely and truly your only hope? If you can answer that with a yes, then you are exactly where God wants you to be. You are exactly 
where he wants you to be. He wants us to be completely dependent upon him for his mighty rescue that only he can provide. Don't weary yourself with trying to rescue yourself. Fight the good fight with Jesus and watch him rescue as he has promised to do. So take heart. It's hard. The world is difficult. But take heart.